Well, I uh, am going to delve into what I think is probably the trickiest, one of the most painful parts of the Christian existence. So no pressure there. But I believe it's uh, found in granting and receiving forgiveness. Now, there are a lot of nuances for us to consider this morning. I will not be able to address all of your concerns in your specific situations. We will evaluate whether or not we are seeking the right kind of forgiveness or seeking forgiveness correctly, or whether or not we are granting forgiveness or willing to based on a number of things. How sincere is the person offering an apology? We know the difference often between a hollow apology and one that is sincere. What's the track record of the offender? If I just say, okay, you're forgiven, will we be back at this tomorrow? Because that's the way it goes. Why don't I feel ready to forgive? And what role do my feelings play in the process? And then that very real, um, very real aspect of this is I'm afraid of releasing some of the control in this. If I give over control and offer forgiveness too easily, too freely, will that person learn their lesson and strive to make changes? Am I giving up all my cards? So it's a very legitimate set of circumstances and some of those nuances to consider. I am 100% confident that the Bible is the living, breathing plan for our relationship restoration. We are going to handle several passages and and sections of scripture that deal with it. But the entire word of God is God reaching back to the people that walked away from him, sinned against him, offended him and his dying strides to bring those people back to him. The entire book from cover to cover is a manual on relationship restoration so please understand, if, if we talk about some things in the few moments that we have and you go, it didn't quite hit my area of struggle, then the Bible has that instruction for you and you just need to dig a little deeper, seek some time with the Lord to find out what those answers are. We're going to be dealing with general principles of, uh, of repentance and forgiveness this morning. And you'll have to wrestle with some of those specific strategies. We are going to make some tools available. Some of them are in your notes this morning. The insert in your bulletin has the sermon notes and some suggestions on how to dig deeper in this. Um, And then a tool available uh, to you out in the entryway as well. And I am convicted that too many of us are carrying the unnecessary burden. I chose these words carefully. The unnecessary burden of unforgiveness. And too many are digging their hole even deeper because they aren't doing the proper work of repentance. And then I think so many of us, if not all of us, have such a short-sighted view of what forgiveness and and, and, uh, relationship restoration, I'll get it out in a second, is intended to accomplish that, that our view of this needs to be eternally expanded. That it isn't just about how we're going to get through the day or the year or this marriage or this work relationship, but it has eternal consequences and rewards. 
So for our backdrop, we're going into second Corinthians. Pastor Ben helped us get into chapter two last week. But continuing on, we're now going to pick up in verse 5. And so while we're early on in this text, it's important to continue to revisit the history. And I, I apologize for those of you that have been here from the beginning. If you feel like this is extremely repetitive, but I think it's extremely crucial as well to what we're getting into this morning. You see, Paul sent Timothy to Corinth and said, I'm hearing that the things aren't going so well with the church. Could you go check it out and see how bad it really is? So Timothy, being Paul's apprentice, goes. And remember, this isn't just a hop, skip and a jump. This is a journey. And so he goes and he's shocked by how uh, dysfunctional the church really is. And so he runs back to Paul and says, you got to get there. There's errors. You're the leader there. They'll listen to you. You got to put this thing back together. So Paul is expecting as he makes his journey back that he's going to be received by, yes, some presenting dysfunction, but at the same time, some teamwork. Perhaps there'll be people there saying, finally, you're back. Where have you been? You know, we've been looking to you to make things right. Paul would have taken that. Paul would have taken their frustration, but he also would have taken that leading to their teamwork. Let's rebuild this thing. Let's prop it back up. Let's make this thing sing for the praise of God again. Instead, what he was presented with is one leader in particular, I think, who got a full head of himself. And this is kind of on the heels of Paul's enemies following the work to Corinth those that were still believing in the Jewish traditions, those that were upset that Paul has defected from the faith and is following this Messiah. And so they want to go and infect his work. So they follow the work to Corinth and they've had some time to infect things there and do what we've been calling the whisper campaign. So when Paul goes and he's presented with this one dude, this guy's probably been told all along, if we get Paul out of the way, this thing could be yours. Who knows? It's not written in the margins, but it seems to be the thing that Paul is responding to throughout this letter as we move forward. And so what Paul is trying to deal with is this shock that comes from being lambasted as he walks into town and being confronted by this one guy. Remember what Pastor Ben said to us last week? He says, if they can tear down the man, then they destroy the message. So if Paul's message is weak, then it plays right into the hands of Satan. See, the enemy doesn't really care about how we play a role other than just to its utter demise. And so if they tear the man down based on his reputation, they started hitting things like, why didn't you come when you say you're going to come? Remember last week, it was all about his integrity when it came to his travel plans. I mean, like you can't even keep your promise to show up on time. And then it gets a little more personal as it goes, you know, money is always extremely personal. And Paul is raising up a collection. He promised the the poor in Jerusalem. He goes, you know, the the Corinthians are going to help us in the cause. So the next time I go, I'm going to get money from them and we'll be able to deliver this. He, and, and so he doesn't show up on time. He's, he's not, um, uh, he, he hasn't shown up for the collection and they go, is he spending this on his own needs? You know, Paul is just living paycheck to paycheck like everybody else, in a sense, scraping by. I'm sure he'd be tempted to use some of this collection for his own needs. I bet he's stopping through the drive through on occasion. He's doing this kind of thing. And so all it takes is a seed of doubt with no founded uh, um, uh, facts to any of the accusation for the church to start going, maybe he is up to something. And that's all this dude needed to ride in on. 
So he shows up and meets Paul face to face and says, where have you been? And by the way, we want an account for the finances. They attack Paul's integrity. And if you've ever been in a schoolyard fight or witnessed one, what often happens, even when your best friend is getting called into the circle, what do we do? We take a step back and we start going, fight, fight, fight. Now, I was always the wimp in that circle. And I'm like, friends, guys, please, you know, who am I going to take on here by myself? And they'd all be standing there like, you're on your own, dude. Fight, fight, fight. And that feeling of isolation and that fear. Martin Luther King Jr. says, no, I'm not comparing my struggle to his. But he does make a lot of sense. He says, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Paul is left alone. So he leaves. He leaves angry. He leaves embarrassed. He leaves heartbroken. He doesn't make any qualms about that. Instead, he leaves and he gathers his thoughts. He does business with his savior and he sends what he refers to as a painful and severe letter. And we understand that that's the letter in between first and second Corinthians that we have no record of other than what he's referencing. And thanks be to God, the letter that he sends to hit him right between the eyes and tell him what's going on and give him an old what for works. The church responds. The church repents. The church probably feels a sense of shame and embarrassment. Like, man, we trusted him all this time. How did we let this guy get into our heads? So the church says we can't put up with this anymore. This dude here that's been causing the problem needs to go. But there's a second application to the letter. Not only does the church repent and feel sorrowful and try to come to Paul's aid, some of them probably coming pretty aggressively. You're not taking out my Paul that way. Remember what we heard from Pastor Sam in 1 Corinthians? They were lining up with the leaders they loved more than the others. There were some still there, a remnant. They were like, you can't do this to Paul. They started taking up his cause. You're going to have to go through me first kind of thinking. But it had a second application. The guy who led the charge, the guy who dressed down Paul in public, the one who embarrassed him and humiliated him, repented and felt sorrowful and was, was, was put out of the church. They, they put him out. They sent him off and said, we can't deal with you anymore. You've got to take some time. You got to go. And it worked. Everything I'm about to say as far as repentance and forgiveness based on this specific passage of scripture, you have to remember that the context is Paul is helping them deal with the person who is sorrowful. It's very important because the strategy changes a little bit to the proud. The strategy changes a little bit to the person who's not trying to repent. I would put it this way. This guy clearly would love to have rewound the clock and done things differently if he could. That's the sign of repentance. That's what I would say is a fruit of repentance. And that's what Paul is concerned about. But there are several people in our lives, right, that are just abuse, 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 and they're blind to it. And I just had somebody this morning struggling with how do I forgive that person? And that's where it gets really tough. So Paul is going to lay out several demonstrations of how to restore these relationships based on his own example and what he's encouraging the church to do. We pick it up in verse five as we get into our text. He says, now, if anyone has caused pain, he's talking about this guy here, he's caused it not to me, or I would put in parentheses based on the way it's originally written, not only to me, 
But in some measure, and not to put it too severely, I'm trying not to exaggerate, Paul's saying, but he's caused this pain to all of you. Paul's saying, he didn't only hurt me. He doesn't expect us to lose our memory. We know that Paul left under very unpleasant circumstances. So if he comes and says, oh, that didn't bother me. You guys got worked up over that. I don't care about that. They would have been like, well, then why did you leave? If you thought that that was no big deal. So Paul's not being dismissive. He's not sweeping this under the rug. He's had time to process and to heal through this and to regain the wisdom of Christ. And he says, I want you to understand something. It doesn't hurt me nearly as much as you think it does. And if he's done anything really cancerous, really ugly, it's been more to the body of Christ more than to Paul. So what is Paul doing? He's, he's again writing himself out of the script. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we said, if Jesus isn't the, the primary character in your story, if he's not the hero, then the world loses hope because they don't find any rescue in us. We can't save ourselves. That the Lord is robbed of his glory because he is the only one who can rescue and save. So Paul says, let me just press this point further. Remember how before I said it's really not about me, this comfort and the suffering? Well, even this forgiveness thing, this isn't about me. His focus was on others. He cared about the health and the, and the safety of the church, the bride of Christ, his children in the faith. And he also cared about the restoration of this sinner. We're going to see how his focus starts turning towards him and putting like a spotlight right on him when Paul could have easily just walked away from the scenario. Here's what our decision is in this. We've come this far. We're what? One verse into our text and I've already got a decision for you to make. We either choose to rehearse the list of wrongs done against us, which are called resentments. We can either practice those over and over again, let our brains just marinate in them, or we can rehearse a different kind of list. The decision is ours. It's a surrendering and a yielding to the Holy Spirit that says, I don't want to live in this resentment because what resentment does is it feels really good at first. It's like this warm towel that just came out of the dryer. You know, it's so easy for me. If somebody offends me, it's so easy for me to just, I can lay out like in sequential rapid fire, become the smartest person on the planet when someone's offended me. I know exactly how you've done it. I know exactly what you've cost me. I know exactly how I'm going to get back at you. I become the smartest person in the world when you've offended me. I engage my brain to practice the things that alienate and isolate me from you because I want you to pay. The problem is, is the better I get at that and the longer I let that go, the more isolated I become. And that nice warm towel that was all warm and cozy at first starts to get stale and itchy and brittle, like some of the teenagers' bath towels in this room this morning. That's what happens. Starts off as this perfect, downy, fresh comfort and gets really uncomfortable and awkward. Paul was wise enough. He'd been through enough things. He wasn't going to let that linger. And he'll say why in a moment. He told the Romans, he said, Beloved, never revenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If you're following along in your notes and you're like, hey, you skipped point number one. Let me just say it for you. 
Paul is telling us in a nutshell that we need to value relationships over revenge. Paul's relationship to the church, and we'll see even his relationship to his accuser, was more important than him getting or giving what was coming to this guy. That would be our first place to start is, Lord, if you care more about the relationship than about my correctness, about the punishment that this person receives, then help me to find a path to build this relationship again. Secondly, he says that we need to practice the forgiveness of Christ. And there is, you know, a subtle alternative to that. Rather than practicing the forgiveness of Paul, or in my case, practicing the forgiveness of Brent, he continues in verse six. He says, for such a one, this punishment by the majority or by the church, by the membership, however you put it, by the majority was enough. I love the word enough here because he doesn't say it was overbearing. He doesn't say it was improper. He's saying it was fitting. Your judgment to move him out was proper and fitting. There'd be an entire different sermon series I could preach on this that perhaps as the life of faith continues, we'll be able to teach and talk about the right role of church discipline in a church and how its members should function. But there is a value and a benefit to that judgment that says this was wrong. You need to be relieved from being with us for a time. So Paul was saying that it did its job. You did what you were supposed to. And guess what? It worked. Verse seven says, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Where have we heard that word before? Remember we said it was said something like 11 times in just a few verses or something along those lines back in chapter one, where Paul was saying that the true comfort that we can experience comes through true suffering. This guy is going through it. And so he says, make sure that you turn from this action of dealing with him uh, in a justice standpoint, which was right for you to do. Now it's time to shift gears. We have a new phase in the friendship and the relationship. And that should turn towards forgiveness and bring them back in. You can't comfort him without bringing him back in. Or he may be, instead of overwhelmed, you could translate this, this word as being swallowed up, which would have been imagery for people in that day when the rebellion that was happening in Korah and God says, I'm going to open the ground and swallow them all up. And that's what he did. Ah, I don't love God. I'm going to serve idols. And totally devours a gazillion people in front of other people's eyes. And, and isn't there a place where we go with this, where we're like, I want that person to suffer. I want that person to pay. And then something extreme happens and we go, well, that didn't mean that. Lord, I just wanted you to cut their cable or something. You know, I, I didn't want the worst thing in the world to happen to them. And it does. It should humble us to be like, how do I think I can be in control of any form of vengeance? I don't know what's the best way to deal with this situation. The God who is capable of opening up the ground and swallowing them whole has all of this figured out. And he's done it through the plan of putting his son on the cross to pay for us. So we should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or the longer this guy drifts out there, the ground figuratively speaking is going to open up 
and swallow him. And it's almost like Paul is saying, trust me, you think you want to see that, but you don't. He tells the Galatians, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And I love this phrase. There's a little bit wrapped up in that. It kind of gets us into a fishing culture a little bit. There was a lot of that going on in Corinth. There, the apostles had a lot of experience. A lot of people in that day had a lot of experience with fishing. And this idea of a spirit of gentleness, uh, you can read into it a little bit about pa- uh, repairing nets. And to quite honestly, when I think of fishing, I don't think of the, the tedious, slow and careful work of putting a net back together. I don't know how to do any of it. I don't sew or anything like that. So I did what anybody in 2019 would do. I YouTubed it. So I was like, how do you repair nets? I want to know. You know, I would think super glue. But of course, there's an entire like net repairing culture out there like this bizarre little internet strand or something like that. And they have all their phrases and stuff. And I found this this adorable kind of rugged old Englishman. You know, he had the great accent and everything, just a happy face on. He's got the rugged fishing hands and stuff. And he's got all of his phrases. And he says, you know, you've got to start at a certain point in order to really put this thing together. And you've got to finish at a certain corner. So you've got to work on, you know, now we're going to get to, I'm going to read my, my lingo here because I don't even know it. He says, there's a pickup and there's a rounder and a mash and a halfa. You know, it's a halfer, E-R, but because he's British. And a halfa. I don't even know what a halfa is. Some of you that sew might ref- know what he's referring to. There's a, ha- a half hitch or something like that. Everyone's looking at me like, we don't sew. What are you talking about? I think it's a half hitch is what he said half a with. So anyway, he explains this with these giant hands and then he demonstrates it in this three minute video clip. But his hands have such dexterity and care and he's looping through and he's doing all this and it's just and this hole in a net this big with, you know, thread that was this big around is done. He's like, and that's how you do it. I'm like, oh, cheerio, you know, good on you. <laughs> what struck me was the strength of his hands could have done anything to that net, could have torn it more, could have forced it together. But he didn't use that. Instead, he exercised a meekness, a humility of keeping that under control to exercise gentle care at repairing the net. You now see the challenge and the decision that the Corinthian church has in front of them. They, the momentum's on their side. They made the right call. This guy is out. We could just ignore him and keep growing. We got the, we got the bad guy out. Let's just have fun at church again. Everything's good. But instead, a spirit of gentleness says, no, we got some more work to do. The only comfort this guy would experience would come from the rescue or the forgiveness from his church. In verse 8, Paul continues, so I beg you. It's really weird to me. So Paul was wronged. He was embarrassed. He's got the upper hand. The church is behind him. And he says, okay, look, let's not go crazy with this thing. I am begging you, get him back. That is so inconvenient. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. In other words, I want you to take the statement that you say, we love people, we love the dying world, we love the lost. He says, I want you to ratify it. I want you to anchor it. I want you to put teeth to your claim that you love somebody by going out and getting this guy back. 
I want you to show that you're benevolent by being benevolent, not just in the things that you say. One of the most common verses I run to in my counseling and often kind of beats me up along the way is in Ephesians 4, verse 32. Paul simply says, so be kind to one another, tender-hearted, picture putting the net back together, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. I've been putting a lot of pressure on those of you that need to forgive somebody, and I understand that. It was brought home to me in the first service, not because they were picking on me, but sharing a testimony that how difficult that it really is when the violations and when the issues of life are truly, truly terrifying. So I don't say this lightly. It didn't cause me to rethink the biblical process of this. It just gets me to think, wow, you guys, some of you are dealing with some stuff. And if the Bible isn't real, if the principles of God's word aren't true, then I am wasting your time. Biblical forgiveness needs to be understood. And for for point of alleviation a little bit, let's talk about what it isn't. Because a lot of people carry the pressure of trying to perform a kind of forgiveness that was never asked of them, that the Bible never teaches to begin with. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. This isn't something I have to wait to feel motivated to do. And am I being a hypocrite because I said I forgive, but in my heart, I didn't really mean it. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It can lead to certain feelings, but it isn't dependent on them. It's dependent on something else. And Jesus illustrates this for us when his disciples said, okay, Lord, um, we're wondering how many times we should forgive somebody and we're going to go out on a limb because we want to impress this guy. We think that if we offered seven forgivenesses to an offense, that that would be pretty satisfying to God, wouldn't it? And you all know that Jesus' response was, no, it would be 70 times seven. And really, if we're getting serious, that's probably just skimming the surface of what the kingdom of God would produce. The apostles' response to that was... We do not have enough faith. You need to increase our faith because we thought we were accomplishing something by mustering up enough of of energy and courage to to forgive seven times. Jesus says, you've rightly answered basically that you don't have enough faith. If you had the faith as a grain of a mustard seed, you'd say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it would happen. That whole powerful thing that churches all across the land are just more faith, more faith. That was specifically tied to us being called to forgive each other more. That isn't quite the prosperity that we were thinking we would get that, that, that forgiveness is not a feeling. It's actually a step, a great step of faith. Forgiveness is also not forgetting. Wouldn't it be nice if we could be true to that old adage? I'm a forgive and forget person. I believe and forgive and forget. Hey, you forgave me. You're supposed to forget that. If only there were that switch. But we live in the real world. And and for for the reasons that only God himself understands, we still live with the memory oftentimes of our own offenses and often the offenses that people have done to us. And we think it would be so much better to be alleviated like that. Flip that switch. As soon as someone says, I'm sorry, we can just move on. We don't think about it anymore. But there is wisdom at being able to hang on to some of these memories. I don't mean rehearse them, but to not be too far from them. If I've been careless with you and I've come to you and I said, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? And then you step out in faith and be like, you know what? I will. And if I forgot instantly what I did to you, I'll probably do it again tomorrow. 
because I haven't learned that behavior. I haven't learned how to replace that. So if the Lord allows me to carry some of the guilt for a time, we've got a lot of pressure out in society to, to, to just forgive yourself, let yourself off the hook. But if the Holy Spirit through the gospel and the cross of Christ is going to daily save me from myself, then I get further and further and further away from being that person that hurt the other one so badly. I need to grow in that. It isn't always just a divine miracle of immediate rescue. That as God works that discipline in me, I move beyond it. And the same thing happens after I've forgiven somebody and I can't quite forget it yet. The more I practice that forgiveness, God often benefits and blesses us as a byproduct of trying to forgive even every every single day. That oftentimes, I don't know if you've been in this situation before, I just did this to someone in my family the other day. We were having a party at my house and, and, uh, my, my aunt was there. And I just remember when I was a teenager, I said the stupidest thing. And you know how your conscience sticks with you for a long time? Well, we were yucking it up and joking. I said, by the way, you were so gracious to me when I was 17 because I said and did this. And she goes, I don't remember that at all. But that is part of the blessing that comes with it wasn't a big deal to her at the time. She moved on. She forgot about it. We don't remember everything. But forgiveness is not a command to forget. Forgiveness is not also excusing sin. Remember we said Paul wasn't sweeping this under the rug. Let the guy up the hook. He didn't do anything. Paul's not saying that. He says your work and the judgment and the practice that you did worked. Minimizing sin destroys hope for the people around us. It destroys hope for us. And it certainly doesn't help the sinner's conscience in the end. The gospel on the cross of Jesus Christ dealt with that sin. We don't have to ignore it. We can deal with it too and then grow beyond it. So what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is quite simply a pardon. It's, it's lifting of the charge of guilt. Picture a courtroom setting and, and, and the, and the judge saying that thing that all of us in that situation would want to hear. You are free to go. Take the shackles off. That's what forgiveness is, is it's a transaction. Understand where you're at. If you feel the pressure to forgive someone, but they haven't come and asked for it, you have half the equation to deal with. You do not have to, hear me carefully, you do not have to extend a forgiveness that hasn't been asked for. But what we need to do very carefully is protect our hearts from resentment. So when a lot of people use the phrase, I'm not sure I can forgive them yet, that's what they're wrestling with. How do I protect my heart from the resentment that I want to rehearse so that when that person finally comes and says, will you forgive me? We would be ready to. It's a transaction. It's also a promise. It's a promise for me not to dwell on this. You've brought it up. I'm not saying I'm Superman or Superwoman, but I am going to start tomorrow. I'm going to try to forget. That's how God handles it. He says, I will remember your sins no more. The, the omniscient God is not going to say, oh, I forgot that even happened. God wouldn't forget. He says, I will remember your sins no more. It's an act of putting it away. I'm not going to dwell on it. And I'm not going to remind you, you did this to me when it's convenient or when you do it again. You see what you always do? Hey, wait a second. I thought we dealt with this before. That's one of the biggest things that creeps up in, in uh, marriages in particular is when you can't outlive the mistake you made 10 years ago. That that's what holds us back so often. So it's a promise not to remind you of it. It's also a promise not to slander you. 
I'm not going to go to this person and this person and this person and this person to tell them all the ways in which you've hurt me. I may have to find a friend or a pastor or a counselor. I may have to confide in somebody, but I'm not going to go and spread the story so wide that, that they'll all think you're a dirtbag. And the minute I forgive you because we've worked it out, all these people are like, why would you take them back? They're losers because I've slandered them. I've tainted their reputation. That's important. Uh, side note, not in my notes, but I have a couple minutes. We established that earlier. For those of you that are young and married and stuff, keep that in mind with sharing the gory details or the fights or something with your parents because your parents will want to wring your, the in-law's neck, the son-in-law, the daughter-in-law and that kind of thing. And you're going to kiss and make up by five o'clock. So don't drag them through that. All right. That was for free. So it's also, forgiveness is also a path. It is a path towards restoring the relationship. And please hear me when I say that the relationship may have to shift. Because of legalities, because of extreme violations, because of safeties. That the relationship may have to change. Now a lot of us, we can repair a relationship and it's like a broken bone that when it heals, it's even stronger. But sometimes when relationships sever, even through the process of repentance and forgiveness, there's some wisdom that says, but we can't be that close anymore. Things have shifted and changed, but I wish you nothing but God's blessing, but we have to go in different directions. There's wisdom in that from time to time. Shouldn't be the first option, shouldn't be what we're hoping happens, but it may be necessary. So thirdly, Paul is saying to us that the reason why we would engage in all this, the reason why we would bring them back in is to resist being a pawn of the enemy. In verse 10, he says, anyone whom you forgive, I'll also forgive. In other words, I will never talk you out of forgiving somebody. I will back you up. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, really, I'm already kind of saying this is not as big a deal as you're making it. If I've forgiven anybody, it has been for your sake. Sound familiar? If we've been comforted, it's for you. If we've suffered, it's for you. So if I'm going to forgive this guy, it's because I know you're watching. But that isn't his own only audience. He says also in the presence of Christ. I loved Pastor Ben's illustration last week about the lighthouse and the battleship and the lighthouse eventually kind of softly saying, you need to turn course. If you didn't hear that, go back and get that on the uh, church app or on the website. But it was a demonstration of Paul standing on the clear conscience of knowing that he was doing what Christ had called him to do. You see, Paul is able to forgive this guy because he knows Jesus is watching. And not only is Jesus watching, but I, 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 I think that we need to visualize in which the, the manner in which Jesus watches all of our interactions. Jesus, as he's holding nail scarred hands up next to Paul, and he's waiting to see what is Paul going to do with this offense? He's encouraging Paul as only the savior can. He says, I know he embarrassed you. I know that he ridiculed you. I know that he called your integrity into question. I know that he nearly chased you out of town. I know that he's starting to rock the boat with our church and all these kinds of things. But understand what I did for him. It wasn't just my reputation at stake. It wasn't just my ego that was getting nailed to that cross. It was my very life. 
And as Jesus is the, the audience of all of our interactions, all of our, our, our calling to forgive the person that's offended me, he says, I know it hurts. He's not saying, what's wrong with you? You see what it did? He goes, I know it hurts because I walked more than a mile in your shoes, but I paid the ultimate price so you wouldn't have to. I can forgive him. I know right now you're struggling and don't we struggle. And a lot of you are beating yourself up. I don't know why I just don't feel it. I understand the gospel. I know what I've been forgiven of. Why don't I feel it? Because it's, we're, we're trying to figure this stuff out, this bag of bones that we walk around in. So the grace of Christ shows up in us and it says, I already died for that. Get out of my way. I'm going to forgive him. And we're going to illustrate this in a second here with a really cool little video and, and an old kind of rusty audio clip from Corey Tenboom. Many of you will know who Corey is, but she is a Holocaust survivor and a best-selling author of her story, uh, The Hiding Place, back in the 70s, which then became a movie and stuff, which is extremely powerful. If you've seen anything around that time, you know how intense and how just ungodly the suffering was. And Corey is going to share her own story with when forgiveness met her face to face in a way that she couldn't even muscle through. And I think it's really neat that we get to hear it from her own words. So let's watch that. It was some time ago that I was in Berlin. And there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Boom, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that was one of the most cruel outseers in concentration camp. And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian, I have found the Lord Jesus, I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world, also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done, but then I have asked God grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fräulein Zambon, will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, Suddenly I knew, I myself have no forgiveness, but I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5.5, and thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive? No. I can't 
Paul said to the Colossians in chapter 3, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. We skipped over a passage, uh, a verse in the middle of all this. In verse 11, we'll come back to the, the, the part that we skipped here. But in verse 11, he says, this is why we do this. He says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Paul is so good to us that in so many instances tells us exactly why he's saying what he says, making our application just right on the nose. He says in verse 9, this is why I wrote, that I might test you, that I might prove you, and know whether you're obedient in everything. Do you hear the weight of the word everything? He says, we can teach us ourselves how to memorize scripture. We can sing the songs. We can give our money to the church. We can make sure we're available for prayer meetings and things. But where I really wanted to test you and prove that you are willing to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ in everything was whether or not you would forgive. That this is what it comes down to for us because Paul knows that forgiveness wins the entire battle. Forgiveness wins the battle of restoring the sinner. Forgiveness wins the battle of releasing the burden from the victim. Forgiveness wins the battle that is the assault on the church from Satan, our enemy. So our choice is very clear. Are we to be mission-minded or do we stay stuck in being me-minded? I'm not ready to give that over yet. I can't yet. Are we willing to let him do what we can't? What is your next step towards freedom? The reason why we've called this, like we said, the strange path to freedom is because it's not the natural thing. It's not the knee-jerk reaction that we would do. This is the hard work that results in freedom. Maybe this morning you're being called to a humble repentance. Maybe you've skated by with just saying I'm sorry or throwing out a wink or charming people to be able to get away with who you are over and over and over again. Maybe you yet have not humbled yourself before the, the, the weight of the cross and say my sin, this innocent little thing that I'm, oh, I'm sorry. What's wrong with you? How come you can't get over it? That's the thing that nailed Jesus to the cross. That I, I'm done living in an I'm sorry existence, but instead I repent. Here's where repentance shows up. This is how the proof of repentance reveals itself. I, I can't believe I did that to you. I do not deserve your forgiveness. I will take whatever consequences come my way. What do we typically do? What do you mean you don't forgive me? Don't you call yourself a Christian? It says in the Bible, you have to forgive me. There's no weight. There's no remorse. There's no real repentance. It's just simply, I'm sorry. Maybe that's your next step towards freedom is to humbly repent to those that you've wronged. Maybe you're being called to obedient forgiveness. It's time for you to step out in faith 
and to give this thing over to the Lord. To rehearse a new list. Instead of my resentments, instead of calling to quick memory all the things that people have done, instead I'm going to rehearse a list of mercies that Jesus has shown me. Yes, they hurt. Yes, they violated. Yes, they offended. But I have done the same thing to Jesus and he has forgiven me over and over and over again. And if I'm having a hard time not being stuck on that list, I got to create a new one. I got to get real personal about all the ways that Jesus has forgiven me. And when I feel tempted to pour that, put that warm towel on as it comes out of the dryer, I'm sharp enough, I'm smart enough, I'm, I'm willing and surrendered enough to know this won't bring me comfort. Chuck it now and put on a new list. We have some follow-up suggestions for you in the, in the bulletin. Uh, some scriptures for you to dig deeper with. Some videos on Right Now Media, which would be very helpful. Um, we had several people afterwards say, how do I get Right Now Media? Um, Pastor Ben, I'm going to have them email you. So if you email Pastor Ben at fefchurch.org. Um, he will set you up with a, a login for right now media. One of the videos, there's two videos recommended in there. Janie Ortland's is extremely effective. I love it because it's 12 minutes long instead of 48 minutes long like the other one. So that's me for you, but both of them are extremely helpful and effective. The last thing that uh, Pastor Gary helped us out with is that I have a pamphlet out on the round table that's called Peacemaking Principles. And it's an extremely helpful, basic, but very clear um, directive on how we seek true repentance, how we offer true forgiveness, and how we continue to practice in them. So it's not an unlimited supply. If they all get scooped up, then I'll know the demands there and we'll get some more. But that's available to you as well. So please don't let this message stop here. Let it transform you as you go forward. Would you please stand and we'll close our time in prayer. Lord God, I thank you, Father, for meeting us here. We thank you, Lord, for the saints that have gone before us. Of course, we're thankful for Paul and his example, but but even for Corey Tenboom and just doing what to all of us would seem the impossible, to forgive the one that oversaw the brutal torture and death of her dear sister and to be able to extend that kindness, to be able to even a step beyond that, Lord, to rejoice in your healing forgiveness. God, our faith is short and weak. Increase our faith, Lord. Help us to do these things for your honor and glory, for the benefit of your praise and for the health of our church and for the freedom that we can walk in. In Jesus' name, amen.